0: Welcome to Knowing Neurons, where neuroscientists take you on a guided tour into the brain. Whether you're a science enthusiast or a scientist yourself, if you're interested in the brain, we've got something for you. I'm Ibrahim Fehi. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bradley Love, a professor in cognitive science at the University of College London. We discuss a wide variety of topics, including his journey into becoming a scientist, the role of computational models in studying the brain, and his insights on the process of skill building. If you'd like information on these topics, I've linked Dr. Love's website as well as the papers we discussed in the show notes. Hope you enjoyed the episode.
1: Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Love. I'm really excited to um, speak with you today
2: thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's wonderful to be here.
1: Awesome. And so uh, you, you've done all of these like really incredible things, but I'm really interested in uh, maybe we can go back to the beginning of what got you interested in cognitive science. And do you remember when you like decided to become a scientist in this field?
2: Yeah, I, I probably had the problem that a lot of your listeners have where i just liked too many things so i mean maybe like even tracing it all the way back to a kid i just really hated school except for recess but my parents really prized educational activities so i was able to go to this fuel science center in pittsburgh on the weekends and like i think i was only 78 years old and learn how to program and like basic and pascal and i was already over that like computer science by like a junior high but uh, maybe i planted some some seeds and then i again, parents into education. So I was able to switch to this good um, private high school where I just liked every subject because the teachers were really good. So whether it was like literature, social sciences, or mathematics, if the teacher was good, and most of them were, I liked it. So I was just really lost. And then I, I, again, taking advantage of my parents, like love of education. When I was 16, I wanted to get away from home. And um, I convinced them, even though they're really strict, to uh, let me enroll in this university outside town. And I thought I'd take two courses that were completely different. One in CAD CAM engineering design and one in existential philosophy. And once again, I was just completely out of luck because I liked both of them uh, a lot. And But somehow, like when I went back to high school, uh, I started realizing what I was really into was like uh, cases where there's a lot of small elements that are relatively simple and they're interacting and, and in aggregate, they do something interesting. So the two examples I could think of back then were like economies where you have a bunch of people and businesses and then somehow we get an iPhone out of it and the brain, you know, we have all these neurons and we have these environmental influences and we get a person out of it. And so like, yeah, when I went away to university, I only got it. I got into MIT and Brown and I went to Brown because basically you could do whatever you want there, at least back then. And so I took a course in economics and cognitive science and like, yeah, by the first week, I was pretty much settled on the cognitive science and then just became a question. For PhD, like whether to do it in psychology or computer science, and back then maybe I'd make a different decision now. But back then, like machine learning wasn't so interesting. It was all like decision trees and boosting, which is fine, but you couldn't really answer these like fundamental questions that are almost like philosophical. But now it could be like science with cognitive science, neuroscience, and psychology. So I kind of went more the science track, and um, yeah, that's how I ended up here. It's like my my long winded creation story.
1: That's super cool. And I think, yeah, the field of cognitive science is so interesting because I think it attracts people who like yourself have interest in so many different fields, like computer science, psychology, neuroscience, maybe even linguistics. And you can study all these different perspectives. Um, Is that kind of part of the reason why uh, cognitive science was attractive to you versus like maybe psychology or neuroscience?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, really like, Ever since I was, again, again, sorry to talk about it so far in the past, but as a kid, like, just when it dawned on me, like, oh, we have a brain and we don't have direct access to reality. And it was like, so it's almost like these, like, you mentioned computer science and psychology, but it was almost like neuroscience and philosophy too. And just like, how does this happen? And then you're like, oh, wow, we could get at these issues scientifically. And I just think by, like, the nature of the questions, if you're thinking of them that way, you almost need to, like, um, borrow from, like, numerous traditional disciplines and then it becomes kind of tricky because it's like, how do you kind of put those together in some coherent way? So I think like cognitive science could just be like a grab bag where it's like you're deferring a decision. And I hope I didn't do that. I hope it was like (laughs) coherent for me. So I I think I could go either way, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if you're interested in these questions by their nature, they're not going to fit squarely into like traditional linguistics, psychology, computer science, you know, neuroscience and so forth.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's cool that like, cognitive science majors are becoming more and more of a thing where students can take their electives and computer science and all these like psychology and kind of mix and match um it, it's really nice to see that that opportunity is becoming uh, more available
2: oh yeah definitely
1: great and then uh so so getting into your research a little bit um kind of essential a, a theme of your research is uh bridging between uh mars levels of analysis and so Uh, David Marr was a really famous neuroscientist at MIT that proposed uh, these different levels of analysis, namely the computational, uh, algorithmic, and implementational. And um, many researchers have taken inspiration from this, but I think in particular, your work has really focused on uh, uh, bridging these levels. Uh, So I was wondering if maybe you could give the listeners a flavor of what these uh, different levels are and kind of how they shape uh, your perspective into uh, cognitive science?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Terrific question. Yeah. So even um, stepping back even from Mar, like um, just because he has just one conception of levels, there's many, many others, but I, I think it's really important to know like where your contribution is because that like basically says what kind of data do you need to evaluate it? Like what would kind as evidence for or against it? Who's like basically your competitors? And also, I think, like you were hinting at, to truly understand some phenomena, you would need like a multi-level explanation where you have something high-level understanding coupled with like a lower-level understanding, and you put those together simultaneously to have something multi-level. So like, yeah, MAR is one approach to that. And I'd be really happy to like go through these levels really briefly because they're so misconstrued. Like, I can't tell you, multiple times I've been in some symposium with people, someone way more famous than me, like like National Academy of Sciences level or something. They will just completely mischaracterize Mars level, particularly the computational level. Um, And it's strange because like, yeah, as an undergraduate in cognitive science, it's in um, chapter one of Mars vision book, which I had to read. You don't have to read the chapter. There's just a table in it. If you want to look at it, if memory serves, that just says what these levels are pretty clearly. And so like the computational level is the highest level in Mars. And it's kind of like maybe confusing the people because it's not really like involving computation, how we think about it. It's more like the problem description um so like i recently i read this royal society paper and the example i used in that was from computer science of like sorting so like a so- sorting is like say you try to sort the numbers into ascending order um like if a list of numbers so that actually is a computational level description it's the problem description it's basically what you're trying to do so notice there's no real like computer program there you're just saying like what problem am i trying to solve and so some people might have a problem with that approach because it's very theological like it's sort of like what's the purpose and it's not clear uh like biological systems have a purpose but setting that aside you know like that's what the computational level is the problem description and if you want to level down to the algorithmic like you mentioned that's like actually the steps you go through so that's sort of the name there is not confusing because it's actually what algorithm do you use to solve the tasks specified at the computational level so for sorting there are many different kinds of sorting algorithms there's like bubble sort sort, and on and on and so there's usually an infinite number of algorithms that will like solve a particular problem specified at the computational level and so you get like a little bit more granularity or specificity in the predictions you can make because like maybe like one algorithm will sort the numbers faster than another algorithm under some conditions so maybe you can make some predictions about response time Or if you think the brain uses, like, representations, data structures, like some algorithm does, maybe you could do some imaging, brain imaging or something, and tease apart, like, which algorithm people are using. Anyway, so that's, like, kind of, like, almost, like, the computer code. And then to go a a layer lower is the implementational level, and that's, like, the hardware, like, where it happens. So that would be, you know, the computer in the sorting case or the brain in our case. And so you could see in some ways, like, where maybe Mars levels are too coarse-grained. Because like all of neuroscience has just been stuck in one level, which we know is not true, that there's many different levels within um, neuroscience. And even like what Mark kind of ripped off was uh, these abstraction layers in computer science. And so there to get from like the sorting algorithm down to physics, there's like, you know, 15 levels. And like Mark kind of compressed it down to three, which is fine, like as a conceptual tool, but maybe just something to keep in mind. And when people complain about this, you know, um, but yeah, just to like wrap up the answer real fast. Like, um, yeah, so people aren't enamored for some reason in Mars levels, like there's other options out there. Like I only go into it if you want, but like, so like Carl Craver, mm-hmm. philosophy of science has this like kind of levels of mechanism idea, which might be better suited to like biological sciences. It kind of does away with this computational level theory, but yeah, I should probably just leave it there and like let you follow up. Cause I think I'm just saying a lot.
1: No, I think that's really cool. And like, cause like when Mar Mar wrote his levels like some time ago, and I'm sure there's been some interesting insights there. Um, And uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome to hear about, but I guess uh, just to kind of tie it back to your research. So, so you, you kind of published this paper and I'm referring to the the paper you published with, with Brandon Turner, where um, you talk about how often uh, different communities kind of stick to their own levels. Like you have this mathematical psychology community that typically sticks to like maybe the computational and algorithmic level where they propose these really cool behavioral models that explain really rich behavioral data, but they seldom tie it to um, maybe the implementation level. And on the other hand, you have uh, people from the cognitive neuroscience community that are experts at kind of localizing in what brain region a certain task is being performed, uh, but maybe they don't uh, think too much about Um, the mechanisms um, the the algorithms uh, in the same way mathematical psychologists do Um, yeah maybe you could speak a little bit about kind of I feel like your research really bridges those two communities would that be an accurate statement yeah
2: yeah yeah, I really like how you put it too and I think just from your description it's really clear why like just having one community sort of drive the whole show would be inadequate like because like again like like I was trying to push earlier, I really think to understand some phenomena, like fully, you need the multi-level explanation. And so like in the example, you're using these two communities, you'd want to have like, yeah, you could have some like really abstract computational rational Bayesian model. You could have some algorithmic model that might go through the steps people do and account for like their behavioral data. And like that would, that's great. But it's also great if you had some like neural correlates, but wouldn't it be even better if, like, you're suggesting, if we could figure out how to bridge those levels and put them together and say, like, oh, yeah, this model is accounting for this brain response. And now we have kind of a more, like, like functional understanding of, like, what this brain region's, like, contributing to, if you want to think of it overall as some computation. And, yeah, so, like, I, I try to do that, like, in my own work, like you're saying, because I think, like, models can serve as a really useful lens on um, brain measures and they could be really good for testing out like different theories of cognition and they have other, other useful functions. So like, yeah, you just, I think you got to put it together for a full understanding or explanation, but I also think there's just like practical reasons why one would want to do it too.
1: Totally makes sense. And I think we're kind of getting into this already uh, with our discussion of of models, Uh, but maybe for someone who doesn't, Uh, do neuroscience research for a living. Uh, Often when I, for instance, try to explain to uh, people what I'm doing, like creating computational models, uh, I I guess the more fundamental question is like, why do you even need to uh, kind of simulate aspects of the brain in a computer? And and how does that help uh, potentially further our our understanding of the brain?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think your your question is is really good. So like the The wrong answer would be like, oh, we just make these models because we like to and they're fun. And whether they are, they are for some people, but that's like not the point for me. It doesn't sound like it's the point for you. It's like really about like furthering explanation, understanding. So there's so many useful functions of models and neuroscience. Like maybe to step back to even like like a psychological question, like there's this really old debate in the 70s about whether like certain findings required like prototype or exemplar representation and learning. And so, like, um, like, really briefly, like, if you're trying to make a decision, like, is that a bird or not? Um, like, a prototype representation would take all your experiences of birds and, like, collapse them into one node in memory, whereas an exemplar one would just leave a separate trace for every experience. And, you, and there are certain patterns where people thought, well, this pattern of behavior in this experiment definitely requires prototype model. But then once people formalize the models, so you can, like, run them on a computer and see what they actually predict, that turned out not to be the case. So like just a step back now, what's the big point here is that you can't even really know what you're predicting sometimes or like, like what, what you're really saying until you could like formalize it and run it just because people just have, we're just not that smart, you know? So sometimes you're like, what am I saying? Well, I think I'm saying this, let's see if it actually, equations actually play out that way. And, um, another thing is that once you formalize those things, Uh, Models, then you could actually use them as part of evaluating scientific theories. Because if you have like a model that corresponds with theory, you could see like which one accounts better for behavioral data or even brain um, measures. So that's just a way to like forward science and go beyond like kind of verbal comparison of theories. And and like finally, if I'm sure like especially all your um, I'm sure all all your listeners that work in science are overwhelmed by like the size of the literature and its exponential growth. And so models are really useful conceptual tools for just, like, tying literature together. Like, say if you know what the best model is in an area, or even just a decent model, that's, like, a really good way of, like, compressing, like, a vast literature down to a few principles. So, like, just to use, like, a really old example, like, if you knew this Raskola-Wagner model of, like, conditioning, and you didn't know, like, a million conditioning experiments, if you kind of understood that model, you'd probably actually predict, that model's not perfect, but you'd probably like have a good read on like a number of parts of that literature without like memorizing, you know, 100 separate papers. So I think there's like, models could provide like an integration of many findings. So yeah, and of course, for neuroscience folks in particular, like I've run um, experiments in which like, if I just did a brain imaging experiments, fMRI experiments, where if I just did a contrast between like, is this condition activating this brain area more than that condition? Like I would see nothing because the because that's not what that brain region's doing. It's doing something more subtle that the model's uh, picking up on because the model is like a better account than my verbal theory of people's behavior. And so when I fit the model of people's behavior, I could like pick out things that are going on in the brain that I wouldn't otherwise. So like they're just really useful to incorporate into analyses in neuroscience. But um yeah, I should just stop there and let you follow up if you want.
1: No, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I think... um I have very limited experience working with neural data sets. Uh, but just, just going in there without a kind of hypothesis that's instantiated through a model is is very difficult because you're given so much data and um, you kind of don't even know how to parse it. But if you come into it with like a model-based understanding, then at least you maybe know what to search for. Um, is that kind of correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, just, I don't want to give the impression that like, people need a model to do like good science. Cause they're like a lot of good science done that doesn't involve a model. But I think a lot of people that are doing good science is exactly what you're saying, which a model could help with Where you. You have something that you're, you're testing. You can kind of know if your idea is supported or not. And like, yeah, so model h- helps with those things. And yeah, in my own like, um, work, it's just great. If you have a model that works well in one study, and then you could carry the same thing over the next and see if it's like consistent so it's again it's sort of like really bringing in your like expectations of before and like integrating multiple findings because like one one finding in one paper doesn't really like mean a lot even if it's a huge paper or it's some glam journal like it's like you got to have to build build it up and like connect things together um, but yeah i totally agree with you that um it's good to kind of go in with some idea and then kind of let the, let the data, you know, kind of show, you know, show the way if that idea holds up. So you could kind of do that quantitatively with models. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds where you have some idea going in and you, but then you get, you kind of get a, a number out of it too.
1: Totally. And and I think maybe this is somewhat related, but, um, I think for many scientists to, to truly understand something, you want to build it. And I think, modeling kind of gives you that because when you're modeling the brain, maybe you're trying to build a small aspect of it in computer code. There's also the AI community that's in a sense trying to build um, aspects of the brain with things like GPT-3. And on the surface, those advances look like maybe our most successful attempts at building something that's mind-like. So do you think that people who do computational modeling and uh, neuroscience and cognitive science can take inspiration from I don't know if I want to call them computational modelers but kind of these AI engineers who who are building uh models that that do at least on the surface uh similar aspects of the of the human mind
2: yeah, no 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 it's a great general question yeah so like hist- I mean first before answering like historically there's been like a lot of positive cross fertilization between neuroscience psychology communities and the more AI machine learning communities. And um, yeah. And so like, I think there's a lot of like right now, a lot of like mixed feelings about this, like in neuroscience where you, so, because I mean, a lot of things are really like hype. They're also really exciting because like both things could be true. And um, personally, like if you, I, I, I find that work informative and exciting because even if a model, say, doesn't work like the brain exactly, or maybe not even at all, maybe it works in a way that's like completely contrary, just seeing that like, these ingredients will support like, these complex behaviors tells you something, gives you some insight that you could probably take away um, something useful for it for figuring out how people are so clever, or maybe not as clever as we think in some cases. So, yeah, so, I mean, it could just be, I mean, first, you could just evaluate them straight up, like, as people did in object recognition literature with, like, the convolutional networks before these huge transformers that you mentioned in, like, large language models that are also now appearing in object recognition models, too. There's visual transformers. But, like, uh, so, yeah, one thing we could just, if we have no model that actually does the behavior, like, kind of as a scientist, like, I'll just... I don't, there's no perfect model. It's sort of like, you know, like George Box, all models are wrong. So like in one sense, if you want to try to account for a complex behavior, you don't have a model of it, you're kind of stuck. So you could just see like which of these wrong models is the least wrong. So that's one way where you could do, as I said, maybe take ins- inspiration from what they're doing and maybe think, well, people can't do it this way, but this thing's working. That gives me some insight into the problem. Maybe I could make a model that's more human-like that um, is a better account of like brain and behavior.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting because even if the model isn't doing the task in the same way a human is, it gives you an, an idea of the solution space. Whereas previously, maybe you had no idea how a task like this could even be solved. But now at least you get an idea of like-
2: Oh, 100%. Right? yeah, hundred percent. Like I have like a really distinct memory of being in graduate school, like literally last century and- um, we're just having this like great discussion and formal discussion about like, when do you think we'll have models that understand language? When we have models, you could show it a, a photo and it says what it is. And I think like the, the closest, like um, estimate for like, basically object recognition was 200 years into the future. So wow. we thought, yeah, like and it was like a lot of s- smart people. And the funny thing is the models, that were already around, like that, totally predate me, like the Neocognitron or something. We're basically no different than the models that do okay, you know, at object recognition. I mean, yeah, the models are brittle in ways, and there's adversarial examples, and they're more texture based than shape based, and you could go on and on. But I just think like people have lost their wonder. If they could transport their minds back to like that conversation or where like where the world was. Yeah, you have no idea it works you'd like because basically we thought you'd have to have a whole like world model of everything and every causal connection between everything to like visually parse things and par- pull out every relation between every object and like kind of have like solve the frame problem and like have this general understanding of everything but it turns out like there's just like good statistics and images and uh, you could just train on like a million of them and have some architecture that builds in some inductive biases like sort of locality that convolutions do and like but not that many things and then boom it, it does okay so like like you said that gives you a huge like um insight into how like vision might work in animals and like maybe like the forward pass through the ventral stream maybe it's not like so like i mean deep as in layers but not deep like conceptually it might just be like this you know and it might just things might just get reasoned and filled in later um but anyway but yeah so I just 100% agree that you could change how you view a problem by seeing a machine do it and get insight into like what is really demanded to solve that problem and likewise when these machines fail and do like ridiculous errors that gives you kind of insight into what they're lacking that like people mm-hmm. must have
1: yeah that's really cool yeah and it's, it's interesting to see that People sometimes take what these systems can do for granted, um, despite like if you were transported back in time a couple of decades and, and you told yeah. someone, they'd be probably amazed at, at this technology for sure. Yeah. Great. And then uh, you also briefly mentioned, um, yeah, maybe I think it'd be great to give uh, the listeners like a concrete example of both uh, Mars levels of analyses and computational modeling in action. Um, and so you 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 briefly um, kind of mentioned uh, the uh, paper you published on category learning and, and how basically there are these two competing hypotheses, the exemplar-based approach, which is that people store kind of individual instances of category members and use those to determine category membership. Uh, and then the prototype theory or hypothesis where uh, the idea is that uh, you, you may not store individual instances, but you kind of uh store the prototypical member of that category and then you use that for category membership uh and so in, in your paper you you use like a really interesting approach to uh kind of test these two hypotheses so, so maybe you could walk us through that
2: yeah i mean first like massive kudos to you for like finding i, I like that paper it's from 2013 in current biology most people like don't like pay attention to anything from more than a few years ago so and it's funny i was listening uh, before, to another podcast and there was someone I, I won't like incriminate them but there was someone like super famous on it and, and he was like well like imaging maybe the questions we've answered with brain imaging aren't that interesting but now I think there's going to be a second generation of questions that'll be really interesting answer like is the brain using prototype or exemplar representation I was like oh man I know, <laughs> we know each other I just sent him the paper and I, I don't think it was like released as news because it's sort of like this newness bias but maybe yeah maybe it should just be like republish that paper in neuron or something (laughs) it has (laughs) a thousand citations but like um but anyway um yeah so all this multi-level stuff you mentioned and the relationship between like psychology and neuroscience really motivated me to do this project with mike mack who at the time was like an amazingly like smart and just great work postdoc you now. he's at toronto running his own lab and ali preston who's was a really good colleague at texas um and so like when i was in way we like to mike when i was in graduate school people would always say things more the psychology people to me is like never going to learn anything about cognition from the brain and that always seemed wrong to me but i had trouble like really arguing with them and like giving them an example that was re- really would stick and so that's kind of like this paper because if you could decide between one cognitive model and another cognitive model based on brain data, that's like cognitive theory. That's exactly using the brain to learn something about cognition. So yeah, so there's this famous um, behavioral experiment that this paper moved into the scanner um, from Medina and Schaefer called this 5-4 task. And it sounds, it'll probably sound ridiculous to people, but literally for 40 years, people have been like replicating this experiment and fitting, Cognitive models, behavioral models, to it, and they could never decide like whether behavior was supported by an exemplar or a prototype model because both models equally fit the data as well. Or like in one study, one would be like one percent better, and another study, another one would be one percent better. So I thought this is the perfect place to like use the brain measures to adjudicate between the models. Um, and so, yeah, in this task, um, we scan these people and. Got the behavior and we fit these two competing models to their behavior and some of your listeners might know about like mind reading or brain decoding studies like where you try to figure out is this person looking at a house or a face or something you try to decode like what visual stimulus they're looking at so here we did decoding from the brain but not of the stimulus to so something more theoretical basically we did like model decoding like is this person's brain think like working like a prototype model or an exemplar model. So we fit both models to each individual's behavior and then each model had an internal state that was very different because one had this exemplar representation, which is like all these separate traces in memory for every experience. And one had this prototype representation, one for each category, each of the two categories learned in the behavioral experiment. And so they're like very different signatures to like decode from the brain data. And the idea was if a model was real, as the brain's changing state, like models should change state in some like lawful way. And so we basically just fit these really simple, um, like, so we, I think it was like linear support vector machine, but it doesn't, it's just a decoder. Like it basically, it's like a regression model to predict the model's fluctuating internal state. And um, even though both models exemplar and prototype, accounted kind of for behavior about the same, in terms of the brain. Response to this brain decoding, model decoding, um, the exemplar model was way better, like for basically um, everybody. So that doesn't mean like we don't have prototype representations. It just means like in this task, you know, it's, it looks like it's really governed um, by something that's a little bit more concrete. And um, it's not mentioned in that paper, but just like one final point is um, a lot of my models kind of move between exemplar and prototype models which makes sense because you should like collapse together experiences and memory that aren't surprising and then separate things off that are, you know, like if you have some massive prediction failure or something. Um, and so like we make these clustering models that work like that. And they also in the study, like they work as well, because in this study, it's very irregular, the category structures. And so like, there's a lot of prediction failures. So the clustering model ends up looking so much like an exemplar model, leaving separate traces for anything. That both models do about the same. But yeah, I guess the big picture point is that you could use brain data to test between two cognitive models. And what lets us do that is the cognitive models are like a set of equations. They're formalized. We could fit them to individual's behavior and see like which one better corresponds to changes in people's brain states. So now we're doing like cognitive theory with neuroscience. So I think that's like, that's sort of like the meta point of the paper. And like, yeah, I'm really glad you like, Found that from the dust, the history, and mentioned it.
1: Yeah, I thought it was really cool when I read it. And sorry, maybe just to, at the end, you were saying that maybe these newer models you're proposing are uh, you do cluster together members of a category in a prototype fashion, but the examples that are more irregular get their own representation. Was that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's a really old, gosh, I mean, I I don't want your listeners to think I haven't done anything since graduate school, but this is actually like my (laughs) dissertation model, which is. Uh, but now it's been sort of related to this circuit, uh, the hippocampus and eventual medial prefrontal cortex. But yeah, so the idea is like um, when you're when you're learning, you're just going to collapse together all experiences into like kind of almost like a prototype-like representation or a cluster. We could just call it. So like, say you I use this example in talks. Like if you're learning about birds and you're just storing and, and mammals, and you have this cluster, you learn of small birds and fly in this cluster of like cows and horses and just these huge like four-legged animals. Now you see a bat for the first time. You're going to—it's going to be more similar to the bird cluster because it's small. It has wings. It flies. And so when you're surprised, you learn a bat's a mammal. You recruit a new cluster to characterize that—that that example, that oddball. But it doesn't have to just be separate because now if you see another bat, it could become like a bat sort of prototype itself. So this model basically says. That like uh, semantic memory starts out as like an episode, a surprising episode, and it could be like semanticized through further experiences. Like if you encounter a bunch of similar bats or something. But yeah, to go back to that experiment, um, that five-four experiment I mentioned, it just turns out that the categories that in the experimental design from the original study are so irregular. And just hard to like, it's really hard to like cluster things together to make sort of like prototype like representations that the clustering model that has this simplicity bias to form as few clusters as possible actually just makes tons of clusters. So I think it only has like, it has like like one fewer clusters than there are exemplars. So basically it's like indistinguishable in this uh, task from the exemplar model. Um, yeah, because some people like always think, oh, you like these clustering models. Why, why are they in that paper? I just just want to keep the paper simple. Like, is it exemplar or a prototype? But if, if you put in clustering in that paper, it'd be like, well, it's either can't really tell if it's exemplar or, or clustering because they kind of mimic each other um, in this task. But another task, it's clearly like the clustering model. Like we have this other work. I think it's like in two thousand. 12 or 11 even older than this paper in cerebral cortex where we have this it's more like the bat where there's like a rule but like you know birds fly uh, mammals don't and then you have like exceptions like the bat except it's all like novel things that people didn't know about just patterns of like visual stimuli and um there the exemplar model can't actually like do this task well because it doesn't preferentially store surprising things which is kind of intuitive just stores everything um regardless of how surprising it is. Whereas like encoding is like really gated by how surprising it is in the clustering miles that gives this boost those items get in the brain and in people's behavior. Like people recognize, um, exception items, things that violate regularities really well. They kind of stand out in memory.
1: That's really cool. Is it like a predictionary thing? or like, yeah,
2: it's, it's a very like particular. Yeah. So there's like, and this model is almost like two kinds of prediction errors. Like, so if you had the bird cluster and you saw a bird that was like slightly bigger than you'd expected, that's a kind of prediction error, but it's very minor. So you would just adjust the cluster towards that example. So it's just sort of like you know, like a like a running average of the experiences. But that is a prediction error, right? But the other kind of prediction error is something kind of like more um, dramatic, like where you just leads lead to the wrong action or something. You can see maybe it's just like really large prediction errors. So uh, it could be that like, you know, you see the bat, it's very similar to the bird like cluster. So that's in that sense the prediction error isn't big. It's not that far from it, but it leads to like the wrong um, action like calling this thing um, a bird instead of a mammal. And so like when something does that kind of leads to the wrong action, then you like take note because it's sort of Basically it says like your model of the environment is too simple and you have to like uh, flesh it out a bit. So you create this new sort of like representational unit. And it seems like that's pretty related to like what goes on in hippocampus. I mean, it supports episodic memory, which is a lot like this, like binding all these features together at once. And it just seems like what CA3 and dead date gyrus does like particularly like goes well with this like surprise based encoding that requires an orienting response with like prefrontal cortex to kind of like zoom in on what's relevant to code this up. At least that's how like been thinking about it for for like way 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 too long. But yeah.
1: that that's fascinating. So so I guess the, the idea is that even though in the in the paper you published the exemplar models matched uh, the brain data better, if you shifted the characteristics of the task. Uh, in, in certain ways, it might be that the prototype models perform better, or?
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think the real, yeah. So I in general, I think, I mean, at least for these kind of tasks, I think people have more like the clustering model in mind. So if you put them in a task like that one in that current biology paper from 2013, 541, people are gonna look like an exemplar model because they're just gonna thrash around and they're gonna have to basically memorize everything. And so the clustering model, We'll actually do the same thing. Whereas you put them in like a really simplistic task, like say there's just like there's one clump of things here that are all small and rounded. There's another clump of things here that are all squarish and big. And it's just like two completely different distributions of stimuli. In that case, you're gonna people are gonna look like a prototype model, but the clustering model will too because they'll just form one cluster for each category. So I think the real trick with these clustering models is to kind of explain. How people move from one extreme prototype models to the other extreme exemplar models uh because i think people really do so i think like a lot of times where people were like oh there's like multiple systems or this or that it's just really like people are just gonna could have like one mechanism but um they might be doing they might manifest different representations and different tasks depending on the demands of the task and uh, i mean these cluster models are so simple and don't like cover all aspects of learning at all but they at least like kind of reflect that, that insight that in some situations, people could look more like an exemplar model, other situations more like a prototype model or something in between. And um, yeah, so that's the challenge is kind of, of those models is to like capture like that, 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 that gradient. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. Cause yeah, it seems often in neuroscience, people come to uh, almost contradicting results and, and, and maybe sometimes it's because yeah, it's, it's small different in the yeah context.
2: no 100 percent. like yeah i think it was like a slide of one of my talks from over a decade ago but yeah it was literally listing like all the different models that underlie like hippocampal function rule-based models prototype models um exemplar models and it's just like well no it's like because clustering models could look like all those models for different tasks it's not like yeah so it's exactly what you're saying. And it's like I mean, it goes back to our earlier conversation about why you need models. Because if you just look at the data, even if you're a very like good thinker, you're like, it's like, how are you gonna know this if you don't like fit a model the behavior or have something to work with? You know, you need, I mean, people are smart, but we need like these tools to kind of figure this stuff
1: out. Totally. And I guess one last question on this project is, the, the other thing I really liked about this project is that um, you and the other authors, You guys had two competing models, and and I think that's probably something that's really important in science. uh, Is that if you just have one model, then you're almost biased towards finding uh, the predictions of that model in the brain data. But if you have like I think it's like related to the ideas of uh, like strong inference, where you want like multiple alternative hypotheses. Maybe you could just speak to that a little bit, like the importance Uh, of having multiple models. Yeah,
2: no, I mean, I think you're 100% right, because I mean, basically, it's really hard to make a model that's like, completely not sensible at all, completely irrational. So every model is going to do something somewhat sensible, and people are going to do something somewhat sensible. So you're always going to get some degree of agreement, like you said, and yeah, and I mean, this is setting aside all like the researcher degrees of freedom and all all this stuff, and like, yeah. So yeah, I think that's that's an issue. It's also a good reason, not just to have multiple models, but also to have like uh, a baseline model, like some model that's just like ridiculously simple, like maybe a model that doesn't even learn, or or just I don't know. I mean, it's just something to show that you're beating, like you're saying, like you could do do better at. But I think you're right too. I mean, we I think we all have this idea how science works that it doesn't often work this way in practice but maybe it should where you have competing ideas and you see which one accounts for the data the best and i'm not like that's i'm not like paparian at all and like oh you've falsified things but but even if you're just more evidential like more bayesian and you're like scientific ontology whatever it should be that like when you run a study it makes you believe more in one theory than another one and to really do that i think you, you do, do need to do what you're saying you know like if you can do it ideally you should have multiple models so like even in that paper you mentioned with the exemplar and prototype models we actually had other models like in the appendix to help understand why the exemplar model is working and to like assuage fears that this might just because this model is more complicated or something so like we completely like over parameterized the model to have like different weights for every exemplar in memory like memory strength things completely overfit the behavioral data and that model like was really poorly decoded. We made another model that was like simpler. We took away its attention weights that, that focused more on certain aspects of the stimulus than others. And then that model like only basically kind of for like really early visual cortex and like was just a really bad model of what went in the brain. So like, yeah, so you could basically do the model testing, like you say, but then once you have one that's best, you could even for a task again, like you could zoom in and like, alter it and like expand it or scale it back to really like figure out why is this model performing better and so like it's just you could go beyond just saying this is the winner and like understand why and like further the scientific explanation so yeah i think that's really really important to do
1: yeah i thought that was really cool and something that i'm trying to take inspiration from uh in my research is i I just think the approach you guys laid out there is really clean um so i know you mentioned we've been kind of talking more about your, maybe your grad school work. So maybe really quickly we can turn to some of the most more recent work you've done. Um, we can just cover this topic a little. And so, and, and, uh, so you, you recently published uh, a, a paper, um, uh, with Nicholas Sexton and, uh, in the paper, you essentially have a computational model, which is a convolutional neural network that's classifying images. Um, and at the same time you have, uh, uh, data from both humans and monkeys, uh, that are also, um, viewing images. And what you show, I think is, is really interesting is that you show you that, um, you can, uh, take the brain data, uh, and by fitting a linear mapping from the brain data, uh, to the model data, you can actually, uh, uh, drive the model to perform, uh, this task. And, uh, additionally, uh, The brain data from the later layers in the visual hierarchy map best onto all layers of this um, convolutional neural network uh, that you guys trained. Uh, so, so maybe you could just walk us through that. Yeah, yeah that- sure,
2: sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, one reason we, we took this on is because this kind of deep learning revolution in neuroscience has really been driven by taking these convolutional neural networks, which, like like you said, they process like photographic stimuli. They have a number of layers, uh, and then they spit out like you know uh, a label like it's a car, it's an ostrich, and so forth. And um, the, these models, even though they're engineering models, have been like really successful in explaining activity patterns in the ventral visual stream. And so the the big like kind of the zeitgeist big finding is that the patterns of activity on the early layers of these models, when you show it a, a you know photograph. Um, Correlate with the early uh, layers, regions along the ventral visual stream, like V1, V2. When you move to the later layers in the model, they seem to like correspond to the later regions along the ventral visual stream, like IT or something. And so, like, but so I guess this paper like, kind of questions that line of work. And it's basically questions the notion of correspondence, which I think is really important to think about when you relate. Models to brains or if people do things like representational similarity analysis or encoding models I mean, There's nothing like wrong with these things But like they bring some assumptions on what it means for like a part of a model and the brain to correspond in this case It's mostly like a notion of like Correlation right? It's almost like correlation implies correspondence, you know, but maybe it doesn't just like how correlation doesn't imply causation and so like we thought we should would offer a stricter notion correspondence that if two things correspond you should be able to replace one with the other so in terms of the ventral visual stream and the deep learning models like you mentioned if some brain region corresponds to some model layer we should be able to remove that model layer and just stick in the brain activity and if the monkey or the person's looking at a car then we should stick in the brain activity into the corresponding layer and the model should say car it should like percolate up through the layers and so um what we um that was exactly what you said. That when you do that, um, basically every like region in the brain, from all the way down the V1, V2, like it best corresponds by our our measure to like a very late model layer, which is kind of surprising because it says it has like information about object category. So it's it's kind of interesting because it's like most of the variants of those early brain regions is explained by lower level aspects of the stimulus, which is like why the field sees this early to early, late to late pattern of course, correspondence when they focus on correlation. But when you do this direct substitution, um, this direct interface, almost like a brain machine interface, um, you see a different picture because it's not about the overall variance or correlation. It's really about, is there a useful signal there? So basically it looks like let I me mean, make a long story short, we did some other analyses, and it looks like after about, this is possible with the monkey data, after about 60 milliseconds, it looks like there's a top-down signal. Somehow information from like very late in the ventral visual stream from like IT is coming down and like influencing activity in like early visual regions. And so even if most of the variant, most of the cell activity in those early regions isn't driven by that signal, it's like an important information signal that is enough to drive the deep learning network. So it's sort of in a way that work suggests that like there really isn't early and late visual areas, at least after 60 milliseconds, it's sort of like there's massive recurrency and that after 60 milliseconds, it looks like everything is functionally a late uh, layer, you know, or a late region. Um, even if most of the variance in that region is driven by like stimulus properties still. I don't know, that's like a lot to digest without figures or something, but I don't know if that makes sense, but the real idea, big picture is like step back, is, is correlation, correspondence, I don't know. I mean, a lot of activity doesn't drive behavior or anything in the brain. Maybe we should focus on like, Something more functional, or like you know, the substitution idea that you should two, the two things are alike, you should be able to substitute one with the other and get the same outcome.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. Sorry, could you maybe expand a little bit more on like, despite the lower layers in the visual uh stream in humans containing like the the, the variance in those areas related to low level features, but the information they were conveying was more similar to the deeper layers in the network. Uh, would you mind like a clear? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it doesn't work like this, but maybe this would like, just, just making this up. Like imagine you had, so these, these, these model like layers are like massive. They're like thousands of units, but let's just imagine there's like 10 and there's one unit and it just, you are looking at a picture of a cat and the top down thing, just makes that one unit fire at an array that means cat you know, and not dog. And then the other uh, nine units, like they're just like giving an imperfect coding of like fluffy and furry and so forth. So nine out of the 10 things are just like reflecting like texture and color of the image. Um, Not not unambiguously saying cat either. Like a lot of things, like a guinea pig is like fluffy and furry. Okay, but like, uh, but one thing is like unambiguously like signaling cat you know it's just like it's the cat it's like it's got the cat signal i mean in reality it's like distributed across all these things so now if you do the interface thing and you do like that little linear translation like you're describing before from the from the brain data to the the model layer like you know if you just have one thing just screaming you know even if most of the things aren't signaling that it's enough to drive the model like forward from a late layer because those later layers are kind of more categorical the deep learning models i didn't really explain this like very very clearly but i guess the idea is like most things could kind of be like reflecting something but like there could be like the key indicator that that is enough to like pull out the answer i should have a better better analogy but i don't know if that does that make sense at all yeah, that or was
1: super clear. so like even though in those 10 units only one unit is like like you could still decode that there was a cat because that one unit contains a bunch of information, right? Yeah, is that- yeah, exactly. Yeah. So
2: it's more about information um, than, which is like what the models about when you do the direct substitution thing than about like just variance or correlation. So yeah, but if you just like correlate stuff or look at shared variance, most of the variance is, is reflecting, um, yeah, like just these like um, more stimulus properties, but like the information content is actually pretty like, high level, even if it's not like dominating the response of all the the cells. Um, Yeah, so I think that's basically what's going on. So it's not that you can't get things to correspond to like this early to early pattern you see with the more correlative approach of the substitution approaches. So in that paper, we did some just like kind of conceptual checks. If you take something that's really almost like an image like a filtered image and you use that as your pretend brain data, then you could obviously like do the direct interface and drive the model. Then you'll, you will see like early to early, you know, late to late. Um, so it's just not that everything, when you directly interface, it corresponds to a late model layer. It's just really about like what, what information and that's relevant to the behavior, the task, the computation is like it's present in the brain data. And so like, that's not necessarily about like correlation or something like because there could just be like a few key indicators that are like that basically this little translation this linear mapping could pick up on Um, obviously if you explain all the variants you know like which is never going to happen in neuroscience let's get some magic machine that measures every neuron and everything at every millisecond if you had all the variants then you're going to have all the information too but um, yeah but usually usually that's not true so there could be like a disassociation between what correlates best between a model and a brain model layer in a brain region and like what, what corresponds um, by like a, a substitution test of correspondence.
1: Yeah. That's really cool. Cause I think there's this, I mean, at least the papers I read, there seems to be an obsession with using correlation measures and that's just one really interesting example of where that might not paint the full picture.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like, I think there's like things to take away that are positive too. Cause like, um, we were talking a little bit about this before going on the air that, you know, you could like develop these models further to put in these long range recurrent connections that we think are going on. And then maybe if you had nice data, like the, like the monkey data, or maybe even MEG data from humans that you could kind of show how the correspondence by the correlative measures even, or how these things change over over time in a way that we predicted by the model, but, but yeah, I guess like I'm contrarian. So I just saw everybody was like swallowing this like logic uh, that that I use myself in many papers uh, (laughs) that I was, and I probably will use again in the future and put some caveat, but like, um, yeah, I just thought everyone was swallowing. It's like, maybe we should like attest that or question that. And we didn't know it would work out this way. And it's really like, thanks to the authors that put their, Uh, data sets online. So things like this are becoming more possible with more data sharing. So there were like two huge human fMRI data sets we got to use. And then this data set, this monkey data set from Jim DiCarlo's lab. And it's just like, at least to me, it's really convincing when you look at very different data sets that that are pretty high quality and large, and you get exactly the same patterns in all of them. And that just wouldn't be possible for any like normal lab to ever do that would be like Herculean task to do that kind of collection for one paper
1: yeah that's a ama- yeah with these websites like open neuro really making advances in like reproducibility in neuroscience cuz you have multiple studies now using the same data set and like uh, and it's been very standardized and if there's errors people can check for them and yeah it seems like a, a really important thing uh, given yeah. some of the reproducibility crises that maybe we've seen
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really exciting. Like maybe the fields like developing and making it possible. That, I mean, it's already kind of happening. It seems like computational neuroscience is, is growing as a subdiscipline. So, I mean, other fields like, like physics, you have like theorists and experimentalists, and they're all valuable and doing important things. It's like when I guess I used to try to do like everything and collect my own like imaging data, but now it just seems like doesn't really make, sense and like it just like people like sometimes like i don't think people should be like totally intellectually specialized but maybe in terms of like skill sets or flows or like what labs are good at like it makes sense to have some like you know develop some deeper skills so like i don't know guess my skill would be like being general or something but uh yeah it's because it's really hard to get like these really good data sets and i don't don't think like one person or lab could do it all unless functionally has like multiple labs within its lab basically.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think when you're spending all this time with these computer models, there's so many skills to learn there. That's also like, I don't know, as a grad student to, to try to learn all the math and stuff to really understand those models, but then to also then try to collect data, it, it can be a little overwhelming. So it's nice that there are these data sets now available so that if you're more interested in, in maybe the, the modeling stuff, uh, you can take advantage of those resources.
2: Yeah,
1: totally. Great, and then um, so so I think we've uh, gotten at least a glimpse of your research, which has been really interesting. So thank you so much for walking us through that. Um, maybe we can get into some like a two or three fun questions sure. uh, or kind of more general questions. Um, so so we kind of yeah briefly talked about this, but uh, especially as a cognitive scientist, there are so many skills that you need to learn, um, like like cognitive science kind of draws from so many fields. Uh, and so what are some insights you've gained over your career uh, into like the process of skill building?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't know if other people would have the same experiences, so like maybe they should take it with like a grain of salt. But <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you, like we were saying, you can't can't learn every everything, but it's important to get some experience with things. I think it's also important to get some like deeper experiences. Um, so like, um, I'm trying to even think back to like undergraduate. Like I had this, this is just one example, like this, uh, make it concrete, this course from this, like, uh, old wooly, uh, neural networks guy that kept like the dream alive of neural networks, uh, in the 1970s, uh, James Anderson. And he had this course, this neural network laboratory course, which I think is exactly like how you could build like intuitions about models and develop like real skills at least by by me where you just you you program things from scratch but you just don't make it work you like basically do experiments on it like how uh, people do experiments on people and say well what if I do this how will it break this or if I change this change the training this way do this and I think if you do this like I don't think there's shortcuts like I mean you kind of have to play around I think with the models to build intuitions about how they work and then maybe couple that with like some formal understanding like some just like you know they they take your linear algebra course and 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 so forth and um yeah just i I don't know and try to try to build up some understanding that that, that serve as a base so when because you can't learn learn everything but maybe if you get like some good touchstones you could filter the the information from the hose a bit better i mean to make uh, like graduate students listening to this feel better like i remember reading like journal articles and it would take like a, a week and now it's like you know it's like the same paper would be like an hour or, or something it's or that le- it's just because you build up like these like general like schemas or, or ways of understanding things and so like it it will one thing is you just keep trying it will get better like over time uh but the other thing is yeah in, in terms specific to modeling i think playing around with the model is just not i mean programming is, is a lot because you could just like download things but i think just program them, you get a lot of insight. But then, more importantly, like experimenting on them, like just like how experimentalists <laughs> run studies and just play around and get, get intuitions about how things break down. And um, yeah, I think that's really useful.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because often you have these intuitions about how the model works and you make a prediction and it just doesn't do what you think it would do. And then you're like, oh, I, I actually don't know how this model works. And then you like, keep revising
2: yeah yeah i mean it's the same uh i mean you talked about uh, reproducibility and the crisis of reproducibility and stuff but like i think it's the same for people that don't do models and like data analysis so like i'm obviously not like advocating for p hacking like that's just not like a valid way of doing inferences to like change analysis techniques to you get the intended result but I really think like especially people starting out should play around and like explore data and be like well what if this went this way what if i use this technique just to get an idea how robust things are what data actually like look like and just like how just where i don't just like understand just understand what you're dealing with and like build up intuitions because then maybe like when things work out instead of you just maybe be more skeptical (laughs) like try to like (laughs) figure out what's going on but um but yeah i just kind of repeating what you're saying but i just for like non-modelers that you kind of have to like play around with things and and build up uh intuitions i think
1: yeah totally um so i guess just to like maybe like if you were a graduate student right now or or maybe just someone um starting a new career like would you like carve out a portion of your day to focus on creating new skills because i think often like the pressure to like do research a lot and it's very easy to be like, okay, I'm not going to go try to like read this textbook or take this course. Like, like how do you maybe recommend to your grad students or kind of younger people wow. in the field to balance that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. And again, like my meta advice first is like be really wary of people providing advice. I mean, people know about like kind of survivorship bias, but like, the world's also it's like everyone's in different circumstance and the world's not the same for like people in graduate school as it was when i was but um it's really hard because there is like a real conflict there because it's easy just to like wave my hands and say oh you should like always discover and learn and build your base it's exploration exploitation you're in the exploration phase of your your life but like there's also like you're also in the calling phase of your life if you don't get things done for the next stage and like yeah, so it is really hard. But I also think, like, you know, you're kind of dooming yourself if you don't build up skills. So I think also, like, intellectually, you have to enjoy yourself. So I, I don't know if I had it. This is my advice it's like kind of like take it or leave it with the caveats. Like, you have to kind of find a space where you're intellectually happy, but you're also turning yourself into somebody that's like interesting and useful to other people, whether it's the field or collaborators. So I guess if you're always just like maximizing like the short term output you're probably not gonna be like intellectually satisfied like 10 years in, and you might not even be that like, you might kind of like peter out or something, or even five, you know, just like things will move on. And where, it, whereas if you like invested more, I guess viewed as investment in yourself, but also maybe your intellectual happiness to build these skills. And just, I guess you have to just live with the risk that you're not like maximizing, getting that, you know, one extra paper or something. Um, and hopefully, somebody will look beyond like the tick marks on your CV and look at what you did do and realize it's actually interesting. They'll go back and you'll find your current biology paper from 2013. <laughs> 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 so it'll actually kind of care and then you'll get to the next stage. And then I think it'll be like, you know, like a snowball rolling down about it just get bigger and bigger and faster and faster. Cause you'll like, cause you will like invest it in yourself and you'll have, more payoff later. Like I don't know. Yeah, so yeah,
1: that totally makes sense. Like, it's good to hear from someone like you that it's good for for the long term to satisfy your intellectual curiosities. Because sometimes I go on YouTube and I like there's like this three blue one brown channel that has like yeah. really cool math videos and they're not related to my research at all. But I'll just spend like an hour watching them. But I but but it's kind of it's in you know, yeah. something yeah
2: i I do that too yeah and also want to make it clear like i I think i've learned more in like the last five years at work than i did in graduate school not that's not like diminishing my graduate school so it's like i don't think it ever ends like you always yeah at least for like some people but um but yeah i think you gotta be happy i mean people talk about so many ways of like i gotta make sure your mental health this but i think like if you're like into intellectual things part of your your happiness and mental health is doing exactly what you're saying and kind of keeping yourself like, you are you know, alive to like possibilities and what's going on. And you never know when you're going to connect things together. Like it's kind of rare to learn something interesting that never has any influence or gets recycled down the way, you know, into something practical. That's not why you do it, but I think it still ends up paying off a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that's why maybe many people choose a career in science. It's because we kind of just like learning about things, even if yeah. immediately they might not be useful like directly uh applicable.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you gotta find that balance for productivity and happiness and long term success, both personally and professionally. I mean it's hard and it's gonna really be different for different people and their personalities and so forth.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there's a lot of individual variability there. Um Great, and so maybe uh, one last question here. Yeah, thanks again for spending all this time. Uh, but, but I think maybe this is the case for you, but many people get into cognitive science and neuroscience uh, because they're interested in, in kind of, it's, it's, it's a study of how human beings operate. Uh, and so you've spent many, many years kind of scientifically studying uh, the mind. Uh, has that given you maybe any insights uh, in your daily life like insights from science that have kind of shaped the way you think about yourself or other humans?
2: Oh yeah. yeah uh, definitely. I mean, it's almost like, uh, yeah. I mean, when you're really into something, it sort of permeates how you think about everything. And I mean, just uh, current events, but yeah, even myself, I mean, yeah, not to get like too strange, but yeah, sort of like the unity of consciousness or something Start seeing like people were like a collection of mechanisms and this, not that, you know, I don't know, kind of, Try to understand. almost interpret my behavior from like a third person perspective. Obviously I always have a first person perspective myself, but like, why are you upset? Oh, it's this or that, or it's like, oh, like, oh, that's that's kind of or or I don't know. But also, there's some things that are practical and funny, and so like, I could tell. There's probably a lot of graduate students listening, so I, I, you could use this is like sort of, don't using what you know about like in this case decision making research or. Uh, to get better real world outcomes. So like I was like kind of broke, like most people are in graduate school and I needed to buy another like beater car to replace the, the other one that was like, this is like in Chicago and it was dangerous, I guess it was either stolen or broke down and it doesn't matter. But like, I, did, I didn't think the price was, was right. And I didn't have a lot of money just, you know, so obviously you're always haggling for someone's used car. And this is like when you just would show up to somebody and like, and you know, try to buy the car from them. So I test drive the car, and I just know from decision-making research that people really overvalue immediate rewards and things that are visible. There's like this massive temporal discounting. So after the end of the ride, I'm just like, look, I could pay this much, and the guy's like saying no, and I pull out like all the cash that I emptied my bank account. It wasn't that much. And I made sure it weren't big bills. So it was just really big. <laughs> I'm like, you could just have this right now. You don't have to like show your car to five other people and like get like probably like $200 more than, which is some money than um, a week later. And he's just like, all right, fine. Here are the keys. Here's the registration. Just get out of here. But uh, yeah, so it was just sort of like knowing sort of how people's decision making work. But yeah, I guess I do that to my myself too. Um maybe that's yeah, I'm not giving you that many interesting stories, but there's one about like how to get a good deal. So you could definitely use like what we know about psychology and negotiation in general. Um, but yeah, but I think also like you said, like sort of knowing the limits of introspection or just how kind of spin stories about your life like I am now and just like the limited like reality of that. But yeah. So Certainly. Yeah.
1: That's that's really cool. So so even if uh if people aren't interested in uh in neuroscience, they could still use some of the this knowledge to to get a better deal on their car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think
2: so that, yeah, so that's like my um yeah, that's not the cure all for the financial ills of our <laughs> times <laughs> inflation and whatnot, but yes.
1: <laughs> that that's awesome. That's a great story. Um yeah, that's a uh that's about it. Thank you so much. Uh, I really, really enjoy talking with you. I really enjoy reading and continuing to read uh, uh, your work. And uh, I, really, I know you're re- probably really busy. So thank you for, for uh, talking with me.
2: Oh, no. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. And yeah, it's, it's great you're doing this podcast. So thank you.
0: Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the use of his songs of Weeping Demo, Pam Gia, and Study and Relax. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support Knowing Neurons and the neuroscience education we produce, consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com knowingneurons. Patrons like you help keep the lights on for our site and enable us to create more episodes like this one in the future. And for more neuroscience, you can always visit us on knowingneurons.com for articles about the brain, science illustrations, and more. Thanks for listening.